So welcome to the Generations podcast. Uh, I'm Luke Goldstein, writing fellow at The Prospect. And And I'm Harold Meyerson, the editor-at-large of The Prospect. And uh, so today we're going to be talking about uh, socialism. socialist uh, revival of our respective generations and uh, the different you know political moments uh, that they uh, spawned from um, and so you know I think first probably we should uh, lay our cards on the table and you know talk about how we um, uh, each came to socialism how we see it kind of playing out with our respective generations well I grew up honestly in a, a socialist milieu. I don't have any great claims of, uh, uh, you know, uh, creation. Uh, some of this I inherited from my parents. I mean, with, uh, uh, st- books by, uh, Arthur Kessler and Norman Thomas, uh, and even an occasional book by Marx. Not many of those, uh, you know, on the bookshelves when I was growing up. That, you know, predisposed me. Now, that said, uh, I was just generally left without any specific ideological right. identification when I was in college, which was the late 60s and early 70s. I was aware that the Socialist Party was having a ridiculous fight over the Vietnam War because it had been more or less controlled by a bunch of uh, democratic centralists committed to George Meany. Uh, eventually, uh, Michael Harrington and the people who had enough sense to realize that, uh, A, the Vietnam War was uh, was a disaster morally and in every other way, uh, two, that the constituencies uh, that had arisen in the 1960s were progressive and shouldn't be shunned by uh, the labor movement. So they formed their own organization, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee in 1973. I kind of stood aloof for a couple of years to make sure they were moving on from this uh, sectarian battle with a group that really was by no objective measure left, uh, and then joined in 1975 and was quite active both in DSOC in my LA chapter and on the National uh, Executive Committee, as it was then called, uh, throughout the 70s and much of the 80s and have been sort of a paper member ever since. And maybe out of loyalty to my heritage, uh, uh, I am uh, still a member of DSA, although, uh, you know, I uh, try to put a distance between what I'm focusing on and some of the sectarian battles that go on therein. Right. Running, running themes throughout here. Yeah. Always. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'd say for me and for, uh, you know, many others of my cohort, um, you know, the, the first Bernie campaign, 2015, 16, uh, is definitely a big moment. Um, and really gained, a lot of you know youth energy um and got a lot of people to identify with the democratic socialist uh label but um you know i think there's a few different things uh that were sort of underpinning that one is obviously economic um you have a lot of younger people who you know are you know, dealing with you know student debt in various capacities or uh burdened by medical debt as well um and i think you know also just sort of a recognition of um, how uh, the you know economic system we've been running for several decades has you know led to the 
climate crisis, which, you know, obviously poses an existential risk. Um, and I think, you know, sort of in addition to that, though, there's uh, a kind of general view of a crisis of political uh, leadership. Um, there's sort of wide, widespread disenchantment at the time of Bernie's first campaign with the kind of politics of Obamaism. Um, and, you know, a kind of sense that it's, uh, you know, weak and ineffectual and, and really sort of, uh, unwilling to take on, uh, real political, uh, conflicts and is more, uh, you know, kind of positioned towards like triangulating issues. Um, and I think this kind of plays out even more, uh, than after the election, uh, of, of Donald Trump in 20, um, 16, which of course sparks, you know, um, widespread opposition, uh, across many different political factions. But that's really when the membership in, uh, Democratic Socialists, Socialists of America, um, uh, starts to really increase. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I think there's a sense that the political status quo is kind of what, you know, what led us here and there needs to be a kind of more, uh, forceful, forceful pose. Um, and, uh, you know, that's when there are all these headlines at the time of, you know, people under the age of like 35, you know, don't believe in, uh, capitalism, have more favorable views of socialism. Um, and, uh, I would say that probably for my generation, there's somewhat of a distinction or difference also between the millennial socialism, uh, which is probably somewhat more uh, identifiable with the current wave of socialism we have right now. Um, these are people who really more kind of came of age during the Bush years and have more of a actual political memory of, you know, the, the Iraq war debate and many Democrats that of course, you know, uh, went along with the invasion of Iraq. Um, and then also really sort of, uh, more so bore the brunt of the financial collapse of 2008, you know, and, there's this kind of strong sense of a, a broken promise, uh, you know, that many of them since the nineties have been told, you know, you, you know, you go to college, you know, you take on debt, but you're going to be kind of guaranteed this sort of, you know, more stable, you know, you know, social mobility and a kind of middle-class life. And after 2008 entering the job market, you know, there really is kind of uh, a breakdown of that. Um, I think this kind of sense of a broken promise, though, is kind of a gap between the two generations that you know sort of sort of bridges it, and I think that's a, a major force here. The irony of DSOC being founded in 1973 and uh, the New American Movement, which merged DSOC to form DSA in 1982, also coming along in the early 1970s, is of course that the New Deal social contract was still more or less in force. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, there's a story going back to 1960, which is definitely before my time in any movement except the fourth grade, uh, that the, the young Michael Harrington, who was a youth section representative for the Socialist Party, was trying to, uh, get the editor of the, uh, uh, student newspaper at the University of Michigan, uh, to see if he would join. And, and that editor, a guy named Tom Hayden, uh, couldn't really see, you know, uh, a need to join a socialist organization. Capitalism as such was not exactly a problematic uh, for uh, even people on the left, uh, you know, in the uh, 
uh, in the 19, uh, early 70s or late 60s. Now, Harrington had written a book in 1967 called Toward a Democratic Left. And what he was basically saying is that if you add up the better unions and the uh, middle-class progressive movements that emerged in the 1960s, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the beginning of the women's movement, you have a majority in what he called a hidden social democracy within the Democratic Party. And, you know, what uh, uh, DSOC and eventually NAM aspired to be was sort of the socialist wing of that uh, sure. Democratic Party. And it, it really kind of succeeded. I mean, there was a sort of sociological analysis of early DSOC and NAM, which I think is more interesting and more germane than an ideological analysis. And the sociological analysis was – uh, you know, we wanted this to be the meeting place for, uh, what was left of the old left and what was left of the new left, which had been badly estranged, uh, during the 1960s, uh, primarily by the Vietnam War. Now, I mean, the, the labor people who were in early DSOC were the labor people who had opposed the war. So they were in, in a direct opposition to the Cold War obsessions of the George Meany and later Lane Kirkland regimes yeah. at the AFL-CIO. And uh, we we always had sort of little caucus meetings at the uh, every two-year conventions of the AFL-CIO where they were opposing, uh, you know, support for the Contras and things like this. That was uh, sort of the uh, DSA faction uh, in labor, but the, the uh, and and you you saw therefore sort of in sort of unifying this left, DSOC in particular in the 1970s sort of taking a role, uh, beginning to uh, oppose the rightward drift of the Democratic Party as the hidden social democracy that Harrington referred to became more and more and more hidden right. uh, uh, as the party became more susceptible to uh, uh, corporate contributions, which had not come before, you know, before uh, this time. So at the, uh, there was actually the Democratic Party had something called midterm conventions as a result of the McGovern reforms. Had one in 1974. Yeah. They had one in 1978. And in 1978, it was basically DSOC that put together the opposition at this convention to uh, Carter and the rightward movement uh, of of uh, the Democratic Party uh, and got about 40 percent of the vote. I, I was there. This was in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and the, the party's response immediately thereafter was to abolish uh, midterm conventions. So you could, you could see the uh, extent that, uh, that that mattered. But, uh, you know, as the Democratic Party drifted further and further and further right, uh, trying to, uh, you know, triangulate a bit with the Reagan revolution. And, yeah. you know, what we saw in the Clinton presidency, uh, uh went beyond what we saw in the Carter presidency. Uh, so th there was a certain vibrance to DSOC and NAM and DSA in its early years. I would argue that by the time we were fighting the defensive battles beginning in the 80s and through the 90s, uh, you know, a defensive battle sometimes provides ideological space for just something distinctly socialist. And sometimes, you know, since you're, you're fighting, uh, to quote the old, uh, socialism versus barbarism, uh, uh, ch still, choice. Still, still used, yeah, yeah. Since you're fighting that, uh, it, it you know, you're, you're, you're simply, uh, opposing barbarism. And, and, uh, however, the one lasting legacy 
of this was the logic that Harrington and people in DSOC and then DSA uh, usually followed, which is that uh, to gain real vis- visibility and to, you know, to, to reach out to sympathetic uh, progressives and so on, it makes more sense to, you know, be in the Democratic Party and run in the Democratic Party than as a third party. And Bernie Sanders, who kind of thought he was an independent, but functioned almost entirely within the Democratic Party, validated this thesis, uh, you know, uh, 30, uh, 40 years after uh, Harrington and and his folks started uh, promulgating it. So uh, in a way, it was a, a vindication, but it took, you know, the unraveling of the New Deal social contract to create so many people who felt you know, beleaguered and besieged by the state of the American economy, as you just said, Luke, in your generation, that combined with, uh, you know, providing a social democratic response, but within a visible Democratic Party primary process that created, uh, you know, the modern DSA. And uh, but I I, want to point out one thing, because I was writing a lot about Bernie in in 2015, 2016. And and, yeah, no, no, I I just yeah, yeah, I just I just want to point out one thing, which is that the polling had already showed that uh, uh, the millennial generation uh, was, uh, uh, you know, uh, was was there for this kind of candidacy. So I, w- what I wrote was that Bernie didn't sort of so much as create this new version of the left. Uh, he just simply revealed it yeah. uh, to the nation, to the new left itself, and and to himself. I don't think he re- really expected. In fact, I know he didn't expect to do nearly as well as he did in in 2016. Right. Right. So kind of a continuation of the Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, Occupy was kind of like the overture for this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't know when the actual symphony would start. But uh, 2015, when Bernie started getting overflow audiences initially on campuses, but then everywhere, that that was a symphony. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you can – I mean, you can – you can see the uh, kind of antecedents of this even earlier with, you know, the war resistance to the invasion of Iraq or even like the WTO protests in Seattle in 99 or something like that. Um, but, yeah, the, the thing I wanted to just point out and kind of ask you about more is that the thing that does uh, strike me the most is the sort of core differences in terms of the political terrain that you know our respective generations were um sort of battling on is you know uh today there is at least more or less a widespread recognition that uh economic inequality is you know is it is rising and you know i mean at least for a lot of people it is an issue it's just more of a matter of you know what you actually do about it what kinds of political tactics need to be taken but for your generation as you've mentioned it is thought of as this kind of period of you know general you know affluence and, and I kind of, I guess I see it sort of in a few different ways. But for one, you might think, well, okay, this period of affluence coming after uh, the New Deal era, clearly a sign of certain success, you know, of workers' movements and, you know, just more government influence. They would actually help people more on the kind of radical fringe to make the case that, you know, this, this program is working and we need to go further. And yet also, that's not really the way that things go. There's also the challenge of people, you know, generally experiencing a level of, you know, contentment and it kind of makes it harder to, you know, as the Michael Harrington book, uh, you know, put it, the, the other America to, you know, get people to basically rediscover that 
poverty actually, you know, still still exists because there has been this, you know, expanding middle class. So how how did you see that kind of uh, you know, that kind of debate, I guess, you know, playing out uh during during your earlier years? Well, you know, we uh, if you look at the Port Huron statement, it uh, which is a, uh, right. the founding statement of SDS, it begins saying, you know, we are a member of a uh, of of a generation that has experienced, you know, a degree of material comfort that no other generation has experienced before. I mean, that was both the perception yeah. and the uh, a substantial, though obviously not complete, reality. Uh, and uh, so, uh, like I said, uh, capitalism as such wasn't widely viewed uh, as a problematic, except, yeah. you know, by some specifically on the left. Now, I do want to say Harrington made a point, uh, which gets sometimes lost in, uh, you know, uh, how Harrington differed from mainstream liberals. Um, he had a line in many of his speeches, which God knows I heard many of, uh, many of, and it was um, – we have to go uh, as far beyond Roosevelt as Roosevelt went beyond Hoover or mm-hmm. we are going back to Hoover. Uh, in other words, and he would, you know, would say this, he would spell this out more uh, in, in greater detail, but that the welfare state in capitalism is and can be an ephemeral transitional state that can be extended or reversed. Uh, and this was a thought that was alien uh, certainly to the center left, they kind of viewed, uh, they viewed this as permanent. I mean, I did a piece for the prospect when we did our special issue on the supply chain screw ups. Uh, I did a piece on trucking and I looked at, you know, trucking was deregulated in 19, uh, the end of the 1970s. Uh, and the, both President Carter and Ted Kennedy, who at the time was running against President Carter, both of them supported this, uh, you know, because, uh, they, they thought uh, trucking rates were too high. And it just simply did not occur to, to them, uh, that what this would mean would mean that the living standards of American truckers, which the Teamsters Union had done a spectacular yeah. job of raising, would decline again. And they did. And they did. And, and this is the story of what happened to much of the working class, uh, that, you know, people assumed, uh, had a, achieved a certain level and it would never fall beneath that level. There's a, you know, one of the reasons why George Meany should be reviled is he, he, you know, was once asked about the failure of the union movement at its height when it represented about a third of the workforce to be organizing more workers. And Meany said, eh, the organized fellow is a fellow that counts. The others don't count. The thought that it would shrink, the thought that, you know, it would go to 6% of the private sector workforce, you know, it cross, didn't cross his mind and it didn't cross, you know, it crossed some labor leaders' minds. Walter Ruther was cognizant of this, uh, but most labor leaders weren't and much of the center left wasn't. And, you know, among the founders of DSA, yeah, uh, there was a, cog- you know, a cognizance which grew greater uh, as uh, Carter moved to the right and as Reagan uh, then, you know, presided over the country for eight years that, uh, you know, we were going to see objective losses. But that took that took a real time to realize. And the crisis point didn't come until it hit your generation in 2008. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. And, and so, you know, I mean, this period that you're talking about, is definitely seen as a kind of, uh, you know, like original, you know, sin of, of sorts, I guess, you know, <laughs> beginning with Carter, but uh, really 
taking off during the Clinton years. Right. The Democratic Party's kind of complete abdication of, uh, you know, its working class voters, you know, which it quickly starts to shed as it moves more towards, you know, more, more towards the big business, uh, you know, flank of, of the party. I'm, I'm wondering, looking back at that period of the kind of slow erosion, because this really is sort of the central challenge, I would say, today of, you know, how does the Democratic Party, you know, right. regain at least parts of the working class base that it has lost. Do you think that there were key missteps by people who were more on, on the left, more of the kind of democratic, you know, socialist flank at the time that kind of uh, allowed for that to take place or that, you know, as you said, they didn't really foresee uh, how quickly basically, you know, uh, uh, the social safety net could, could be a road. Well, like I said, I mean, Harrington saw this and, you know, eventually I think most of the people in DSOC and NAM and then DSA saw this, but you know, that never exceeded maybe 7,500 people, uh, uh, to look at it narrowly. I remember Tom Edsel, who now writes a weekly online, uh, what does social science say about our problems column for the New York Times, wrote a book, which is a great book in 1984 called The New Politics of Inequality. And he did a great equation, which I think explains more about what was going on right then. He looked at the 1982 congressional races and he looked at all the campaign contributions to the Democrats and Republicans, and he labeled the contributions either left or right. So a union contribution and a contribution from a progressive PAC, a organization was left, a business contribution or a contribution from a right-wing organization was right. Okay, the ratio, the ratio of right-to-left contributions in the Republican Party was 33 to 1. The ratio in the Democratic Party for all the Democratic candidates running for Congress in 1982 was one to one. Uh, and this was new. You know, this is, this is your beginning to see, yeah. uh, the corporate mobilization that Lewis Powell wrote about a decade earlier in the Powell memo. Believe me, no one on the left knew about the Powell memo for a long time after, uh, it was written. And then there were particular members of Congress who, made a point of uh, bringing in Wall Street and corporate money to the Democratic Party. A head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in the mid-80s was a guy named Tony Coelho, who represented an area around Fresno, California. He was he was famous for this. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, what did the left do about this? Well, you know, the mainstream left protested. There were events. There was a labor march on Washington in 1981. Uh, none of it really worked. And of course, the right wing was mobilizing uh, around themes of race then. Re- Reagan did a, a pretty swift, uh, you know, pretty sneaky good job of uh, of doing that. Uh, but as as they were mobilizing their folks, the Democrats were moving as with under Clinton, as you said, to, you know, free trade agreements, which were a disaster for the Midwest. Right. Uh, you know, so it, on the one hand, I would say we, we didn't do enough. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the tide was going out and just as King Canute couldn't stop it from coming in, uh, no one really had a great idea at that juncture as to how to stop it from 
from going out. Uh, and the, the intransigence of the labor movement until finally Lane Kirkland was ousted in 1995 was was no no help for this at all. Uh, uh, you would have expected them to really be on the front lines. They were getting clobbered. They did a few things that began a counterreaction, like funding the early uh, economic policy institutes. So, you know, someone would at least have the real numbers as to how workers were getting screwed, which didn't exist until EPI came along. Uh, but uh, they, they, you know, they didn't do much, uh, and uh, and and we didn't do much. And you know, look, even uh, the financial collapse of two thousand eight didn't immediately produce a left-wing response. It took a while. It took a while before, uh, you know, uh, millennials realized the recovery was not coming their way. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, Occupy uh, was three years after uh, the, uh, the response of, uh, of 2008. So how, how, much, how much, in your opinion, in, 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 in your generation, how much is this economic? How much is this cultural? Uh, you know, I mean, there's some baseline assumptions that were not the baseline assumption of my generation when we were your age. Right, right. Well, yeah, I think the other one that we haven't completely touched on in terms of, uh, you know, general economic conditions, you know, I mean, much is made out of this. Uh, but, you know, I think it's also that if you look at some basic metrics of how easy it was to become, you know, a homeowner, for example, several decades ago versus now, you know, it's virtually, it's virtually impossible. Um, and, you know, some people don't have as much of an issue with this, but at least in terms of one factor of a social contract that is broken down, you know, two key parts of this, at least for the general idea of, you know, a stable middle-class life is, you know, having, having a mortgage, having, <laughs> having a home, you know, uh, and, and also in terms of, you know, what a, you know, what an education degree, uh, can afford you. And obviously, you know, cost of education has just gone through the roof, uh, in recent decades. Um, I would say that those are probably two of the, two of the main, you know, factors, uh, probably that, that people look at. Um, and by the way, maybe here we should take a, a quick break. Hey, it's Ryan Cooper, managing editor here at The Prospect. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Prospect Generations. But I also invite you to enjoy our affiliated podcasts. Alexi the Greek and myself host Left Anchor, where we discuss politics, theory, and the left with the best writers and thinkers. You can also join comedian and prospect contributor Francesca Fiorentini for The Bituation Room, a humorous roundup of the week's news with plenty of bitching. You can find Left Anchor and The Bituation Room wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to The Prospect as a Power Level member, you can unlock bonus content for each of them. What a deal! For more information or to sample the shows, visit prospect.org slash podcasts. Let's get back to the show. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me ask let me ask you another question then. Uh, Bernie labeled himself a democratic socialist, and the issues he ran on were really what I would call social democratic. He wasn't talking right. about uh, taking over the means of production. Um, Harrington always said any idiot can nationalize. Uh, right. It's not uh, com common ownership of the economy. Right, yeah. right. Uh, and uh, how would, you know, uh, 
how would you describe your generation of the social democratic or socialist left vis-a-vis yeah. that distinction? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. I, I think it. I think it is. It is key because people mean a lot of a lot of different things by democratic socialism. I, I would say that the general view, and it does start with what you just pointed out. You know, I mean, no one is advocating for a common ownership of the economy, or you know some like top-down command economy system. I think what a lot of people today describe themselves as is either social Democrats or, you know, there's this kind of a, a new like burgeoning school of thought called like market, you know, market socialism. Um, so, you know, the idea is, you know, it mainly focused on rebuilding in many ways a social safety net and going beyond, you know, even what the New Deal offered. That combined with, uh, you know, more robust, you know, unionization, um, and then I think for some key sectors such as healthcare um, and even probably housing, that there is going to be more government intervention and, you know, probably some kind of government run healthcare system and, you know, more subsidized government housing as well. Um, and, uh, but, you know, other than that, you know, it, to get into more specifics, I guess, you know, like, you know, setting prices, for example, is still going to happen through markets, uh, you know, same with like resource allocation, but there would also be, you know, more probably worker control of, of firms that are, you know, competing in a marketplace and, and steered by, uh, you know, government directives, uh, more or less, you know, Bhaskar Sunkara wrote a book several years ago, the socialist manifesto, that I think is probably one of the best, um, you know, kind of, uh, views of sketching out, you know, exactly what, what that would look like. There was actually a sort of little intellectual flurry of market socialism interest, uh, I think, in the late 70s. There were books like The Economics of Feasible Socialism by Alex Nove, but there isn't really much of a public for that. Uh, uh, I would say, I'm sure Bhaskar's book sold a lot more copies than uh, Alex Nove's book, but, you know, uh, I, I don't know that any serious organization in the American left in a long time has really called for, uh, you know, public ownership of the means of production. Yeah. Uh, you know, it happens, you know, th- th- things happen uh, in the context of a capitalist economy that might be uh, rather socialist mixed with, uh, mixed with capitalists, this, uh, programs that Roosevelt put in like the Tennessee Valley Authority or the, yeah. you know, was, was, uh, setting up, uh, a public, uh, institution which competed, uh, on, on affordability with private utilities. Uh, the very non-socialist governor of California, Gavin Newsom, has just allocated funds for a, uh, the public, uh, the state will produce and market insulin. Uh, at a, uh, a, a low affordable price, $30 per 10 milliliter yeah. vial. Uh, so, you know, uh, you don't have to be uh, an avowed socialist. And if market failure becomes so uh, apparent to the public and so damaging to the public uh, and to, you know, not to an ideological slice of the public, but to people in the South who needed electricity in the 1930s and people dependent on uh, affordable insulin right. today, you know, um, non-socialist, uh, non-socialist governments will, uh, uh, will, will, will intervene. But the, usually the, 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 the limit of that is having created 
a publicly controlled source, it then right. goes out into the market and presumably, if it's run well, can uh, outcompete and or bring down prices in the private sec- uh, sector of that market. Right. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, there was – there's something uh, else kind of changing gears that I would say is very much an active uh, debate on the left in DSA circles that is another kind of point of you know overlap that I'd be curious to get your thoughts on. So in terms of the kind of dissolution of, of the new left, um, do you think that this was a direct consequence of, you know, the, the McGovern campaign? There is also, I think a certain kind of view that, um, you know, the new left moved away from a certain set of universal programs towards more, you know, kind of identitarian, you know, interests. And that while this, you know, made sense at the time, it kind of set the left down a path that, you know, sort of broadly played into the Democratic Party, you know, also shedding certain uh, working class support. What, what, what do you what do you make of, you know, that 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 debate? I suppose? Well, the new left was never one thing. If you're looking right. at the uh, Students for Democratic Society, SDS, uh, you know, by the end of the 60s, they had fragmented into one group that was uh, the Weather Underground, which was not exactly uh, pointing to a bright future for the American left. Their chief achievement was blowing yeah. themselves up. Uh, and uh, uh, the Progressive Labor Party, which was self-avowed Maoist at the time, although no one quite knew, including the Progressive Labor Party, what exactly that meant. Uh, there were uh, groups of the left coming out of the 60s, the, the, the socialist left, that, uh, you know, said we have to go into the factories yeah. to organize uh, workers. That was sort of bad timing. Uh, uh, workers in the factories in the early 70s were not yet getting it on the chin. It was not a pleasant time. Uh, and there were movements in the 70s against uh, speed up on assembly lines at the Lordstown Auto Plant in Ohio, things like that. But it was... Uh, uh, that did not prove a notably successful uh, endeavor. Yeah. Uh, the identitarian stuff, uh, yeah, uh, originated as a lot of things originate on the left. The people like Betty Friedan had an explicitly left background. Uh, Gloria Steinem, a little bit of one. Uh, uh, but that was kind of, you know, that was kind of normal. And also keep in mind that uh, you know, the civil rights movement had a, uh, integrationist and then a black nationalist components. Right. So that, 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 that was always there. Uh, the, the, this was never really integrated, at, uh, f- fundamentally into, uh, you know, what you would call an overarching fusion of class and identity. And this is a problem, not just for American socialism. It's a problem for every, Socialist yeah. Party everywhere and every center left uh, grouping everywhere, uh, you know, and, and, and today you, you have uh, writers like Adolf Reed saying, well, forget it. It's all class. And uh, you have others uh, taking the uh, reverse, uh, you know, uh, view. And uh, you have uh, people who say, well, these are not mutually exclusive. You can do both. But yeah. uh, I don't, you know, I, I think. In terms of the outreach to uh, 
to workers, it wasn't much. I mean, just in general in that period. And, you know, one thing we know as a result of the fight to oust Lane Kirkland, you began to see, this is later, this is the 90s, but you began to see a lot of documenting that, well, unions were not, were spending on average maybe 3% of their budgets, if that, on organizing. So there wasn't really that much, uh, initially of a class focus. So of course, the, the one burst of organizing that did take place beginning in the 60s was public employees. That was new. They had been excluded from coverage under the National Labor Relations Act, but uh, teachers and city employees in liberal states and liberal cities that allowed for collective bargaining uh, did uh, did organize. Um, and today, obviously, the most unionized uh, occupations in the country turn out to be cops and teachers uh, who are, uh, you know, fighting it out in places like Chicago, as you and uh, you and Jared have written recently for us. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, uh, at times, you know, the focus on identitarian politics uh, in many ways, pre- you know, proceeded in the absence of people uh, uh, doing class politics. That took a while, you know, and arguably class politics has only really returned in the last decade as, uh, as a result of, of your generation's uh, understanding how just how uh, unbalanced the economy has become. Right. Well, no, and I, I just I ask in part because, you know, the eternal challenge for the left has always been that uh, the political consciousness, you know, begins typically with a certain group of, you know, educated classes. And yeah, the challenge is always the kind of yoking of, of that with, you know, a working class base through unionization, organizing and other methods. And I think probably uh, though it has faults, the, the two Bernie campaigns were the central vehicle for a period to kind of bring that, bring that about, you know, to bring, uh, to build those coalitions. Um, and one of the uh, difficulties is that in the absence of, you know, a mass mobilization campaign like that, uh, and without a clear sort of, you know, successor to, to, to Bernie, um, I think that the organizing on the ground is sort of grasping for, you know, what is that, you know, what, what is the key factor and, and flank where you are bringing educated classes of, you know, of, of socialists where it's mainly taken off with to, uh, you know, people, you know, working, working class people on, on the ground. No, that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, at this point, the capture of most, most of the white working class, uh, entirely on sort of cultural politics and, uh, uh, such by, by, by the right, uh, you know, uh, you, there is sort of a centrist democratic response to that, which is that we should, uh, you know, uh, you know, go a little bit of the distance toward, uh, toward that. Uh, I think what Bernie was offering and in attenuated form, what the Biden, uh, administration is offering is saying, well, hey, they can, you know, uh, if, if you want to just, uh, rail against woke, uh, yeah, go, you know, you can rail against woke, but here we have some, uh, you know, we're offering some genuine things that can help, you know, really, uh, you know, give you a better life. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, 
the view of the Biden administration on the left is is understandably complicated. Uh, he he certainly has uh, adopted uh, some yeah. of the Bernie platform, uh, but he is not Bernie. Uh, he is not even the most uh, articulate representative of uh, of his own approach. There there are others who can do that better. Um, and, and so, uh, even when he, uh, you know, is fighting, has been, uh, trying to push things like, uh, free, uh, tuition free public colleges and, uh, affordable childcare, uh, and, and, and such, uh, you know, it doesn't rally, you know, it's, it's not wrapped up in a nice package that really kind of excited the people you were just talking about who remain currently sure. and, and somewhat understandably unexcited. Right, right. These are the two bases though, you know, yeah. Yeah. Of, of the party. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, right. So it's somewhat in, in, in tension. Uh, no, I mean, also, I think probably the other major challenge that we'd want to touch on here is, Exactly that, though the kind of Bernie wing has um, uh, gotten closer to the Biden administration, probably, you know, closer than in recent memory, you know, um, that also has its own problems, which is that without fully being in power, you're still also kind of blamed (laughs) for certain, you know, policy failures or, you know, strategies, you know, you're kind of, uh, you know, there's there's a target on you and not everything is is fully in your control as well, which I think going forward, you know, uh, is going to be you know one of the bigger problems that the you know the organized left has to deal well, with. Well, that that that's historically been a been a problem with the left. I remember, you know, I attended uh, the the two speeches Bernie gave one in 2015, one in 2019, at uh, Georgetown University here in Washington. Uh, which were billed as his defining my kind of socialism speech. And in uh, each case, he really didn't reference earlier socialists. He didn't even reference his hero, Eugene Debs, except in passing. But he pointed out that a lot of what he was about was just fulfilling, uh, you know, what Roosevelt was for. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, uh, Roosevelt State of the Union Address in 1944, uh, an economic bill of rights, Roosevelt, uh, you know, so, so there is this, uh, you know, the sense of, uh, mushing things together. And anyway, after his first, first version of the speech in 2015, I came back here to the prospect and wrote a quick piece saying, well, when Franklin Roosevelt was president, the Republicans said he's really a socialist. Today, Bernie Sanders said yeah. the Republicans were right. Uh, you know, uh, and, and so, yeah, uh, just attacking, uh, um, you know, the kind of moderate social democratic policies of, uh, of that can be advanced by a Biden or by many Democratic members of Congress as socialist. Yeah, you, you, you get the attack, uh, w- without actually being the person who, uh, puts it through, who implements it, uh, you know, uh, or, or even who can claim credit for it. You know, I mean, when the left has succeeded, it's, it's version, the less version of success, at least in this country, is it argues for a program and 20 years later it becomes sort of center left and it gets adopted in, uh, uh, you know, in attenuated form. I mean, you know, uh, the, the socialist leader Norman Thomas, who led the Socialist Party from the, in, in the 30s and 40s, uh, 
you know, some people would say to him, well, you know, Roosevelt has carried out your program. And, so, and, uh, and, uh, Thomas would say, yeah, he's carried out on a stretcher. Uh, you know, uh, so, uh, th- th- this, this is the kind of, this is the kind of conundrum that the American left and the American socialists, uh, often, often confront. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and another topic that I, I thought, uh, would be good for us to get into. So, you know, today there's the rebirth of uh, the socialist left. There's also a rebirth of the new Brandeisian, uh, you know, anti-monopoly left. Now, these two groups are clearly in coalition with one another, uh, at least in terms of, you know, the political terrain today. Um, and, you know, certainly throughout American history are really both drawing on similar traditions, at least, you know, the, the populist uprisings of the late 19th and early 20th century. And, and of course, the New Deal, like these are really two the the two planks of the New Deal program, you know, antitrust and, uh, and, uh, you know, social, uh, social programs. Um, I'm wondering how you, you know, kind of uh, see the way these two groups have at this period in time, at least, you know, come together, because of course, philosophically, you know, there are you know, there are some, you know, key, key distinctions as well. And not just philosophically, sometimes operationally. Um, the, uh, one of the best unions in the country, the Communication Workers of America, the CWA, which God bless it was the only major private sector union that, you know, from, from the eighties and the nineties and the aughts and the teens kept striking and winning when every other union had given up, uh, striking as something they couldn't win. So the CWA had worked out a deal with, uh, Activision and Microsoft or Activision and Microsoft. Yeah. We'll let you, uh, yeah. we'll let you unionize, uh, you know, the workers. We will not, we'll go neutral. We will not oppose it. Uh, but the antitrust people uh, are uh, vehemently against the, uh, Microsoft's uh, basically purchase, but called a merger of, uh, of Activision yeah. because it, it certainly reduces competition. Uh, so, you, you know, so you get you get these distinctions and sometimes these distinctions are, uh, you know, concern. You know, I mean, uh, with the worker concern, you are concerned about the nature of the corporation. And with antitrust, you're concerned yeah. about the scope of the corporation. So, you know, so that's an inherent uh, obstacle. But there is so much uh, that nonetheless unifies these groups, uh, even while these divisions exist, that, you know, I think. I, I, you know, notwithstanding CWA versus uh, antitrust, I see it uh, less of a conflict and 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 more of a being able being able to work together. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, perhaps this. I mean, a simpler way also of putting it is they are just they are different visions of a kind of economic mm-hmm. democracy. Yeah. You know? One is sort of about competition between firms, and one is more you know, kind of about management and, and its workers. Which is well. sort of why this public option version that Jacob Hacker first uh, uh, surfaced in the early 2000s around the idea of setting up a public insurance company, you could buy into Medicare. Sure. Uh, and, you know, uh, you were, so you were, you were buying into a public system, but it could outcompete the private system because they didn't have to, to worry about the absurd profit margins that the private systems uh, have, which which Obama put into the bill that he sent up 
uh, the Obamacare ACA bill that he sent up to uh, the Senate, but Joe, Joe Lieberman did not, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he refused to vote for the package as a whole until that was taken out. And so they only had 59 votes. And, and they didn't can't... exactly go to the mat for it. No, no, right. no. But Lieberman is such a, anyway, I, yeah. yeah, I don't know if he's well, gotten. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but, um, you know, uh, so uh, in, in many ways, what we uh, are, are seeing at best is uh, setting up public options that can be worker controlled, that can be government controlled, but end up still in a market system. And that, that would be the only way I can think of that you would fuse what are, as you rightly note, two really dissimilar views of how you get to a better economy. Sure. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think also, though, um, part of what you're seeing as well is, uh, though there are historically these dissimilarities, uh, there's a whole interesting group of research that uh, is looking pretty specifically at um, monopsony power, you know, in in uh, in the labor market, where you are seeing kind of the fusing of these two theories, you know, there are two schools of thought as well, where if you have such a high level of corporate concentration, this is going to, you know, uh, in turn, give them power, you know, over, over labor in, in the absence of course of, uh, you know, strong unions, um, as well. And I think it's not, you know, um, a, uh, I, I don't think it's a surprise also that the FTC with Lena Khan has taken up, you know, non-compete agreements, for example, as one of its most ambitious, uh, you know, uh, rulemaking uh, authority assertions. Yeah. And not I mean, the, the, the whole notion that you have to sign uh, when you when you go to work for a corporation on line uh, 76 of the contract, it says you can't go to right. work, uh, you know, uh, you know, for X years and within X miles of where you're working. Uh uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, that sort of monopsony, you know, even saying, well, we know we have it de facto, but we want yeah. it de jure too. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, that is absolutely a coming together. And, uh, certainly in, when you see a, a worker oriented think tank like, uh, Economic Policy Institute, they have been exposing, uh, exactly how much damage right. non-competes and, uh, you know, also, uh, forced arbitration, uh, uh, inflict on much larger sections of the workforce than is commonly understood. So there, yeah. yes, there you have a coming together of, of both, uh, anti, antitrust and, uh, and worker interest, uh, in, in its rawest form. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, so what do you think? There's anything we, uh, Anything we haven't, anything we haven't covered, and well, we haven't discussed stories. Marx's labor theory of value. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, we we haven't discussed uh, what was in the first seventeen drafts of Marx's eighteenth yeah. through mayor of uh, of Louis Napoleon. That's an obscure joke. Uh, and uh, uh, what what about what about you? What, I think I, I mean I, I think we covered just about just about everything. What a no, thought. No stone, no stone left unturned. Okay. Okay. Well, then let's uh, leave yeah. all those turned stones up and, uh, and, and call it a podcast. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good.